You know, the Bible is a book of encouragement. I don't know if you think of it that way. A lot of people think of the Bible as, as a book of condemnation, and clearly there are things condemned in Scripture. Some people think the Bible is a book of truth, and surely it is a book of truth. We, we know that there's a God from creation around us, but it is the, the special, specific revelation of the Word of God that tells us who God is, who we are, and how we can be right with Him. But the Bible is a book of encouragement. One of the first verses I memorized when I was working through a discipleship booklet on prayer was Jeremiah 33.3. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. It was a verse that encouraged me to, to pray. And the encouragement for me to pray was because God will answer and God will show me things from His Word that are in accordance with his, with his will. And encouragements like that are all through the Bible. Probably the verse, besides John 3.16, that almost every Christian knows, besides Jesus wept, is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's an encouragement verse. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in me will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's an encouragement verse that, that you will make it because God is at work in you. Taste and see, the Lord is good. It's an encouragement verse. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It's an encouragement verse that tells us to seek the Lord because God can be found. And now is the time. The Bible is a book of encouragement, and, and we all need encouraged, don't we? I would say, you could probably overstate this, but some of our best work is done whenever we're inspired. When we're inspired, when we're encouraged, when we are enthused. I was sitting over there this morning thinking about this message, and, and I'm like a, just chomping at the bit to, to get to, to this letter of in Revelation because it's just packed full of so much good stuff. We do some of our best work whenever we're encouraged, whenever we're inspired, which is why I think Satan works so hard to discourage and dishearten God's people. I mean, think about it. The amount of time Satan spends trying to discourage believers is probably equal to or possibly even greater than tempting them to sin. Now, I understand that discouragement can turn into doubt, which can be sin, but the Bible calls Satan the tempter, but... He's more often identified as the accuser of the brethren. He accuses you before the throne. He accuses you to your own, your own soul. He accuses you to others. And he can't stop God's work himself, so he attempts to get us to quit. It's his constant labor. Have you felt this, this discouraging work of the evil one in your life constantly, constantly, constantly just hammering on you? You can even hear it in the, in the Proverbs. You take two, uh, two steps forward and one step back. And while Satan is the accuser, Jesus is called our advocate. And the Spirit is called our paraclete, or our helper. He's an encourager. And the letter to the church at Philippi is a message from Jesus to encourage his followers as they, as they live for him. Philadelphia is the is the only letter other than, other than Smyrna that contains no rebuke, only praise. And, and they needed it because the church was small. They'd made little progress in reaching the culture around them. 
They'd been kicked out of the synagogue. The door was, was shut there. They weren't getting a listening ear for the gospel with the, with the unbelievers, the pagans, the Romans around them. And while it seems like they're failing, Jesus writes to them a letter and reminds them what they can be confident in and encourages their souls. He encourages this little flock by reminding them of His character and control. He tells them that He's pleased with them. What beautiful words to a Christian's ears. God is pleased with you. He reminds them of their vindication for wrongs done on the earth. He reminds them of their protection from wrath that is to come. And He reminds them of heaven. What encourages you the most? What what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Where do you point your soul whenever whenever you're defeated, or what lifts you whenever you're disheartened. God's design may not, may not always be to remove the difficulty from your life, but it is to relentlessly encourage you in your faith. God may not take you out of the fire, but He will encourage you to endure in the midst of it. Well, if you haven't done so, I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to look at how God strengthens us through His ministry of encouragement, and specifically what He says should encourage us, what He says should motivate us, by seeing how He motivates this little church called Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. This is the sixth of the seven letters, and we've got one more to go, and that's the lukewarm church in Laodicea. The Bible says in verse 7, And the angel, and to the angel of of the church in Philadelphia writes, The one who is holy, the one who is true, or the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no man can shut, because you have a little strength and yet have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and make them know that I have loved you, because you have kept my word, the word of perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of trial or testing, which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God, and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the says to the churches. Here's exactly how I would outline Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 13. I I think the theme is God's design to strengthen the the faithful, not just this faithful church, but but you in particular, as you walk through through life. And he begins like he normally does in verse 7 of this, there's a pure and potent description of Jesus Christ or depiction of, of Christ. He then moves to praise and promise of vindication for the church, the things that are done on the earth. And then 
he moves to protection and promised deliverance from, from wrath and, and to heaven. He says, be encouraged. I've got everything under control in verse 7. He says, I'm pleased with you. He says, I will right the wrongs. He says, I will keep you from the day of real trial, real tribulation, which is coming upon the earth. And he ends with, heaven is real and it's your future home and no one will ever take that away from you. Encouraging, encouraging words. Philadelphia is is a city located southeast about 30 miles from Sardis. And and verse 7 says, the angel is writing to the church at at Philadelphia. you, You can't see it from this map, but it's strategically placed at the doorway of this central plateau. If you're going to trade in the east, you go through Philadelphia. So uh, Philadelphia was considered the city of opportunity because if you made it there, then you're going to make it through the other side and get to the, get to the trade routes. The city received its name from the devotion of one of its rulers, Atlatius Philadelphus, who took the throne but relinquished it to to his brother when he returned from Greece. The name Philadelphus means lover of his brother. There's still significant ruins there that you can, you can see today. You went on a tour, you would, you would see some very amazing things. While the ruins are, are significant, Jesus points us not to decaying ruins, but... Uh, to a holy God. Look at verse 7, if you would. Here's this description of Christ. He says, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. He tells them that He is the matchless Lord and He's the self-governing King. Now, in every letter up to this point, I've repeatedly told you that He pulls from the vision that's in chapter 1. Well, this description is not from the vision in chapter 1. It's drawn from elsewhere in the Old Testament. The Holy One is the title for God in the Old Testament. And the True One is the title for the Messiah, for Christ. In the Old Testament, God is repeatedly referred to as the Holy One. 2 Kings 19.22, you can just pull from a number of different places. Whom have you blasphemed and reproached? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on, on, on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. Probably a more familiar verse in Isaiah 6.3. When Isaiah sees into the throne room, what are they saying about God? He is... Holy, holy, holy. He is the, he's the Holy One. He refers to God who, who alone possesses absolute holiness. And the title, the Holy One, is, is confirmed about Jesus Christ in the New Testament, oddly enough, by a demon. Look at Mark chapter, chapter 1, verses 23 through 24. There was, a, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and, say, and, and said, Be quiet and, and come out of him. The demons know that God is the Holy One, and the church should know that and should rejoice. Now, I think when we hear the word holy, what, what naturally comes to our mind, our tendency is to think clean living. And, 
And it implies much more than that. It doesn't imply less than that, but it implies much, much more than that. I think when we hear the term a holy person or person that lives a holy life, we, we think they, you know, they don't drink, they don't cuss, and they live a life free from sin. But, but when God talks about His holiness, it describes His nature. He is holy. He, it, it, it speaks of His inherent uniqueness. He's set apart. He's, he's unlike us. He's holy. He is not holy simply because He does right and doesn't do wrong. He always does right, and it's impossible for Him to do wrong because He is God, holy. God's character. It, God's character governs His intentions, His actions, His plans, just as God's character in us should produce holy actions that imitate Him. Why do you strive to be, to be holy? Peter said... Be holy, for I am holy. And what Peter means by that is, is as people with, with new natures, we should produce behavior that mirrors God. Sinners sin because that's their nature. And believers become holy because we have, we've been made new creations in Christ Jesus. And we're set apart from the world to be like God. And if you get that backwards, you're... You're gonna you're gonna end up trying to pump water from a from a dry well. Paul Tripp has a has a great illustration where where he describes moralism or behaviorism as our attempt to attach good works to our lives rather than rather than produce them. He calls it apple nailing rather than apple picking. He says he says it's like trying to behaviorism trying to attach works to your life rather than produce them, is like trying to nail apples to a, to a barren tree. He said, you don't, you don't nail apples to a tree, you pick apples. You don't attach righteous works to, to your life, you, you bear them by your nature. It's why, this is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be converted. You must have a new nature. Your old nature can't produce righteous works. There's none righteous, no, not one. What comes from us is like an open sepulcher. What comes from our mouth, Romans says. There's no fear of God before our eyes. What motivates you to be, to be more like Christ? Maybe you're struggling and failing because you're, you're trying it backwards. What did Jesus say in John 15? How will you produce good works? Abide in me and let my words abide in you and you will bear much fruit. God is holy. He's the holy one. He's also true. That's what he says. I find it interesting that after any debate or town hall or whatever it is in in a in election season, there's always the truth meter that comes out on on Monday, right? Or how many Pinocchios that whoever the guy was get, and 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 they always. I mean, I don't know. I didn't. I don't have any scientific study, but I just say, remembering what I read, I don't know if any any of them, you know, don't get some Pinocchios in there. In the midst of so much false and and perverted in the world, isn't it wonderful that Jesus Christ stands alone as the one who is completely genuine? He is truthful. Let let God be true, and every man confirmed a liar. God is true. He'll never deceive you. When He says that He'll save you and carry you to heaven, He'll do it. When He says if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, 
He'll forgive you. He will. When He says that one day you'll stand before Him, and if you're outside of Christ, you will be cast into the lake of fire, you will. He's truthful. He doesn't sugarcoat things. He doesn't tell us half-truths. And whatever He tells us, you can take to the bank. And here, Jesus is described as the true one. What did Jesus say? The verse that we all know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's speaking this. What did Pilate say? What is truth? And Jesus said, I am. Now, this is not a new description. I don't think that you should see who is holy and who is true and who has the key of David as three descriptions. I think holy one and true one go together. I think there's actually two descriptions here. Holy and true is wed together. They, they, they're, they're married. Robert Mount said this aspect brings out the great truth that right doctrine is linked to right being and, and right living. Just as there can be no holiness without God, there can be no holiness without truth. If you want to be holy, you must pursue truth. You must know truth and apply truth. He is the Holy One. He's also true. Now, he also gives a, a second de- de- description. Look at verse 7. He's, he's holy. He is true. And, and He has the key of David. He's the... He's the self-governing king, is how we described it. This is from Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulders, so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. Jesus is the one who has the key of David, he says. And a key represents authority. It's not just any key. It's the key of David, and that that key represents authority. Uh, John uses this title for, for Jesus about David in Revelation 5.5 5 and Revelation 22.16. He makes it clear that David is symbolizing the messianic office. It's the, it's the promise that God makes to David that there will be a kingdom that will have no end. There will be a throne that will not end. The Messiah will sit upon the, the throne of his father David. And Jesus is the one who has the key, the key of David. And look at what else it says. Who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. He says this, this one says what's coming in the rest of the, of the letter. Jesus, as the holder of the key of David, has authority. He has authority to determine who enters the messianic kingdom. You're not getting in the kingdom unless you come through Jesus Christ. He has the key. He has complete control over the royal household, is what he is saying. And it's interesting. Revelation 1.8, we've already looked at this. Jesus is also described as an, another set of keys. He has the keys of death and hell, but here Jesus also has the keys to salvation and blessing. Isn't that encouraging? He has undisputed authority to admit or exclude from the new Jerusalem. You're not getting in. If you're a Jew... You're not getting in if you're a Baptist. You're not getting in unless you come through Jesus Christ. You may have those secondary names. You may be a Messianic Jew. You may be a Baptist trusting in Christ, but he has the keys. And he tells us why that's an encouragement to his church. There's this praise and promised vindication. They're praised for their works. More than once, he says, you've kept my word. 
And he also promises them vindication. Look, if you would, at verse 8. I know your works. I know your deeds. The Holy One, the True One, the Sovereign Lord of the church speaks to them and he says, I find nothing to, to condemn my little flock in Philadelphia. He praises them for their works. Look, if you would, at the, the end of, of verse 8. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. He encourages them, first of all, with praise. He's pleased. There's no rebuke. Now, I don't know what motivates you or what encourages you, but there's no greater encouragement to me than the sense that God is pleased. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there, there are times in my life where I don't think God is pleased, and that grieves my soul. It, it defiles my conscience. It doesn't change my standing with God. It doesn't change your standing with God whenever you, whenever you sin as a believer. It breaks fellowship between you and, and Him, but you're secure. And, and you, you feel that. But on the flip side, there's nothing that lifts my soul. Like knowing that, that I've done right. I've obeyed the Word. And God is pleased with me. Men may not appreciate your work, but if God does, that's all that, that's all that matters. And He encourages them. Their, their work is not being praised by the Jews in the synagogue. Their work's not being praised by the Gentiles around. Their works may not even be praised by the people within the church, but Christ knows their labor and He praises them. You remember that next time somebody discourages you or somebody doesn't acknowledge or even criticizes your faithful labor. And He changes the metaphor here. He, he, he continues with the door... But he changes the metaphor. Look at verse 8. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. The door has two possible meanings here. It's, it's a door for their works. Like the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians 16.9, a wide door for effective service has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. It's either a door for their works. Jesus has opened up a door for their service or it's a door for the for the kingdom. And I'll show you why there's, there are two possibilities. Philadelphia was called the, the doorway to the east. It opened the way to opportunity. As I said, it, if you wanted to go east and trade, you went through the door of Philadelphia. And Jesus knows their works because He has opened the door for those works. He's opened the door for their service. He's encouraging them that though they had little strength, and their work seemed small, it wasn't in the eyes of God because God had opened that door of service for them. He opened the opportunity. Now, don't miss this. Because God's open doors aren't evaluated by size. We are praised for our willingness to walk through the door. We're not praised for how big the opportunity is. Pastors that have been faithful over... 30 people in the jungle in Nepal or in the backwoods of North Carolina will, see, will receive the same praise for faithfulness as the man who stands and preaches faithfully to 3,000. It's the door of opportunity that God has opened. And, and 
God's open doors are not evaluated by Him by size. They're evaluated by their faithfulness to that door. He opens them and we walk through. Has God opened a door of service for you that you won't consider or you've turned down because you think it's too small? Jesus said, be faithful in little, and I will make you ruler over much. He's opened a door. He's also opened another door that others are trying to shut. Look at what he says here, verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews but are not but lie... I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. The church, this is the second time Jesus calls the synagogue, uh, a synagogue, the synagogue of Satan. Not in this letter, but in another one. And the church had been thrown out of the synagogue. And they, they used that as a fear tactic. You're cast out of the synagogue. You have no access to the people of God. So you have no access to the, to the kingdom of God. And they tried to use that to to create fear. And Jesus says, this fear tactic won't work for you, little flock, because He's Lord over the kingdom. And you have nothing to fear about being cast out of the kingdom. I'm the one who has the keys to the kingdom. The synagogue doesn't. Fear's been, been a tactic of false religions for centuries. The Catholic Church used to control cities by locking doors and refusing mass and pronouncing anathema on people. And they would just stop serving. And and the people had no Bible, and they believed that the mass through the church was the way you got into heaven. So when they locked the doors, heaven is cut off to them. The Mormon church, even today, warns salvation requires you to be part of their religion to enter into the third heaven. False ideas such as works-based security teaches you that you can sin your way out of salvation. And they think that that fear of being lost again will cause you to do right. But Jesus teaches entrance into His, into his kingdom is through Him alone. And, and perfect love casts out all fear, doesn't it? It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. And truly, those who don't know Christ should fear the judgment that's coming. That's going to be a theme in Revelation. But Christ doesn't govern His kingdom by fear. He doesn't govern His church by by fear. Oh, you revere the Lord. You acknowledge God as God. But He doesn't govern us like some despot where we have to to always be concerned if we we step wrongly to the right or wrongly to the left that somehow a lightning bolt is going to come out of heaven or we're going to be... We're going to be cast into outer darkness. He opens the door of the kingdom through the key of faith in His death and resurrection, and He governs His subjects by, by giving them a new nature, providing His Holy Spirit, providing His Word, encouraging us to, to obey. Oh, He'll take you to the divine woodshed if you continue in sin, as they say, but even that is an encouragement. Isn't that what Hebrews tells us? It proves that we're His that we're not bastards, but we're sons. We're children of God. That's an encouragement. And one day, Jesus says, those who are His will be proven. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. That's the, the Jews that say they are, but they're not. I will make them bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
It's a reference to Jesus' covenant relationship that, that, I, that they'll know that I have loved you. God loved Israel with an everlasting love. He loves you with that same kind of covenant-keeping love. And what's interesting, though, is it's a reference of what will happen to, to Jews one day. It comes from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 14 and 15. The sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing down to you, and all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you an everlasting pride, a joy from generation to generation. This is a reference of, of what the world will do for to the Jews one day, those who embrace the Messiah. Though they're despised by the world, God will bring the nations to acknowledge that the Jews are His chosen people. He will give them the land that He promised them. And Jesus applies this verse to His little flock in Philadelphia. Though excluded from the synagogue, fearful that of the, of the persecution around them, the pressure around them, he says, you will be vindicated one day in Christ. Moffat calls this the, the grim irony of providence. He says what the Jews fondly expected from the Gentiles, they will be forced to render to Christians. They'll play the role of the heathen, acknowledging the church as part of the true Israel of, of God. That was meant to encourage them. And I want to encourage you, because Christ does in this letter. One day all of the enemies of Christ will know and will see. Those who, who speak blasphemy today, those who flop their gums about Christ, run down the church, those who persecuted you, slandered you, harmed you in earthly ways, will all stand before the God of the universe and you will be there. They will, they will be there. And you, according to Revelation in the end, will be beside Christ and they will be before Christ. You will be at His right hand and they will be under His feet as judge of the universe. And I want to encourage you that vindication is coming. It's not yours to take. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay, but it's coming. Wrongs will be made right. All lies will be revealed. The escapers of justice will be brought before the inescapable judge of the earth. And you'll be there. And you'll see it. And this little church will be there. And those who called themselves Jews and threw them out of the synagogue but are not will bow and acknowledge that they are the ones that Christ loved this little church. But there's something much more precious than vindication of, of our service here on earth and our name on earth. There's, there's something much more important at stake. The protection and promised deliverance from wrath to, to heaven. Look, if you were at verse, at verse 10. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of trial or the hour of testing 
that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And look at what he says in verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him a name. He promises deliverance from wrath, the wrath that is to come upon the whole world, and he promises permanent residence in heaven. This is encouragement to this little church and should be encouragement to your soul. How's that for encouragement? You're not going through the tribulation, you're not going to hell, and you're going to heaven. That ought to make you smile, right? Now, I want you to notice what he calls this here. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world. You see that? That's significant because both of those are a reference to the tribulation period, the three and a half years in particular of the Antichrist's reign that's getting ready to be unfurled in the, in the rest of this book after we get past the throne room. What lays beyond Laodicea? is the vision of the throne room of God, Jesus receiving the scroll and beginning to unfurl it. We'll see what's coming upon the earth. It's a reference to the tribulation. Now, some try to interpret the preposition here, from, I will keep you from the hour of trial, as by translating it through. I will, I will keep you through the hour of trial, saying it means that the church will be preserved and will go through the the tribulation period. But I want you to notice that the verse says the church will be kept. Be kept from it. Besides that, the Bible says that tribulation that's coming upon the whole world, the whole earth, is, is for two purposes. It's a time for Israel to repent. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's to turn Israel back to God and prepare them for the, the second coming of the Messiah. And their eyes will see the one that they pierced, and those who are living will, will believe. And it's also a time for the earth to be judged. It's, it's for Israel, and it's for judgment. That's what the tribulation is for. And Jesus reiterates here, it's not a time for the church. It's not a time, the church doesn't need scourged, and the church doesn't need judged. The church doesn't need turned to Christ. They, they know Christ. They've embraced Christ. And those in Christ won't face wrath or won't face judgment. Now, it's true that the church will, will face trouble in the world. We face peril and sword and hunger and suffering. We're, we're killed all the day long for Jesus' sake. But I want you to notice what this verse says and what those other verses say about how we're, we face persecution. That persecution is from the world. It's not from God. And the Bible says that suffering comes because we're followers of Christ. It doesn't come from Christ. It's from the world because we're followers. The wrath that is to come upon the whole world is from Jesus upon the world. You see the difference? One is suffering the world gives, and we should embrace that, not as evildoers, but it's coming. And we suffer because we're faithful followers of Christ. The other, this one that Jesus is talking about here, Christ brings upon His enemies and to turn Israel. And some will repent. But sadly... Most will perish. That's why we must tell them now. That's why the gospel must be proclaimed before the tribulation comes. But there's more. Look at what he says here. 
will not just escape the wrath that ushers in the earthly kingdom, will enter the eternal kingdom and be with the Lord forever. He, verse 12, whoever comes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and, and he will not go out from it anymore. Now, interesting, in verse 11, I am coming quickly. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming, and I am coming soon. The coming of Christ, when, when it was announced to Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis, was all negative. It was a threat. This is an encouragement. The coming of Christ is an encouragement to the church at Philadelphia. In Ephesus, it was, I'm coming, and if you don't repent, I'm going to move, remove you from the lampstand. In Pergamum, Jesus said, I'm coming, and I'll fight against you. In Sardis, he's going to come like a thief. But here he says, I'm coming. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. You're getting in, but strive to be in the medal count. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Coming, his coming to Philadelphia would bring the fulfillment of the promise that all Christians long for heaven. I will make them a pillar in the temple of, of my God and they will not go out from it anymore and I'll write a name on them. It's all representations of, of permanence. The temple, the pillars of the temple represents permanence. They're not going to go out from that kingdom any longer. It's permanent. And he also says he's going to write a name on them. There's a threefold inscription. Look at what he says here. I will write on him the, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my new name. The name of God stating that he belonged, they belong to, to him. The name of God's city, the citizens of the New Jerusalem. And His own new name. That's the name of Jesus Christ. They got there by being related to Him. We'll be part of a day and live in a city and we'll never go out of it. And in that city... We'll belong to God. No one who doesn't belong to God is not going to be in that city. There'll be no devil. There'll be no wickedness. There'll be no sin. There'll be no temptation. That city is, is the new Jerusalem, and we become citizens. And in that city, we'll be there because of Jesus Christ. And He'll be in the center. Turn over to Revelation 22. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put part of it up on the screen. But I think it's so much better just reading it from the pages of Scripture. This is after the glory of New Jerusalem. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, describing this day that, that we will see the followers of Jesus... Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The tree of life, which Adam and Eve could not eat of, lest they live forever in their sinful condition. Now glorification is complete. All sin is gone. New bodies, no sin. You can freely eat of the tree of life and live forever. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. It will be in the center of it. And His bondservants, that's us, will serve Him. And they will see His face. And look at this. And His name will be on their foreheads. And they will no longer be any night. And they will not have the need of light or lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate them and they will reign forever and ever. Look at verse 6. And he said, These are the words, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, sent his angels to show his bondservant, the things which will soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the book of this prophecy. Look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to, to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon His face, the One who saved me by His grace. Are you saved by the grace of Jesus Christ? Well, if you're not, Jesus has the key. He's the door. And if you enter by Him, there is no one that can exclude you from heaven and you'll never be cast out. That's an encouragement, church. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads? If you don't know the Lord, you will only enter that city if you come through the blood of the Lamb. What a beautiful city. You go to other passages that talk about the other option. It's not pretty. This is beautiful. He is the door and the cross is the key which unlocks the door, His work. And your faith, your trust in Him is what will open the door. What about you, Christian? Are you encouraged or are you discouraged? The end is not far off. So so He says, hold fast to what you have so no one will seize your crown. So He said, don't just get in. Don't just finish when. Has he opened a door of service? 
Don't worry about how big it is or how small it is. Walk through it. He's opened it. And if He opened it, no man can shut it. Be encouraged, church. God knows the condition of His little flock. He knows your hearts. He loves you. Father, as we come before You, we praise You for Your Word. I thank You for this message. I needed this message. Lord, I needed to be encouraged. And I thank You that You've encouraged me. Oh God, help me live for Your pleasure. To hear in my soul that You are pleased, regardless of what men think. Lord, help me to walk through the doors of service or remain in the doors of service that, that you, have, you have granted each one of us. Lord, help us to be encouraged that wrongs may not be righted here, the crooked may not be made straight on the earth, but they will be straightened one day. Help us to be most encouraged, Lord, that we'll be with you one day in heaven. And we long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.